I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about a terrific new book by former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley called The Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama, we have with us here former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this book is really pretty unique. Along with your co-editors, Peter Fever, William Inbodden, and Megan O'Sullivan, you edited this book. It was unique. It's unique because it contains 30 transition memos prepared in 2008-2009 under your direction by the out, then outgoing President George W. Bush and your National Security Council staff for the incoming Obama administration. And each section after each memo has a postscript by the experts that you worked with critically assessing the Bush foreign policy legacy. Can I ask you, you know, the transition that you presided over is generally referred to as really the model for all transitions. But in undertaking this book, what did you learn? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. And a couple things I think strike you about the book, particularly if you read the transition memo on, for example, Russia and China, which is hasn't we didn't edit those at all. They're exactly as they were passed to President Obama and his team in January of 2009. But you see how different the world is, how the China and Russia that Bush faced bears almost no relation to the China and Russia that the Biden administration is facing today. That's one thing you learn. Secondly, one thing you learn is if you if you look at, the, there's a view out there that the Bush administration only did Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror. And if you look at the table of contents for those 30 of the 40 transition memos, we're doing everything all the time, 24-7. And this myth out there that any, and it's not just the Bush administration, it's true for any administration. This myth out there that administrations have limited bandwidth and they can only do one or two things, it's just not true. If you're the United States of America, you're doing 40 things every day, day in, day out, that matter to the American people. So that's a second lesson people ought to draw from this. I think a third lesson that they ought to draw is really that who is president of the United States really matters. One of the things that you do when you read these transition memos you see that a lot of the initiatives that were undertaken in the Bush administration were at least ideas that the president came up with or ideas that he framed and conceptualized. And a lot of these initiatives required his active participation in the implementation and execution. And again, I don't think that's unique to the Bush administration. I've been saying to people, in any administration, the president is the chief strategist for that administration. If they're lucky, they have a very good team of cabinet members who they enable and empower, who take the steer from the president and turn it into a policy. But the extent to which the president is the chief strategist, I think, is really underappreciated. And the last thing I, I would say is that for an administration that was viewed as pretty unilateralist, it's amazing how much the Bush administration was working 
with friends and allies around the U world, but also other regional and international institutions. And Bush had a model, and again, I think it is a model that America and other presidents have used, to start a national program, whether it's how to deal with terrorists or how to deal with the problem of proliferation or how to deal with HIV AIDS in Africa. Take a national program or a national initiative, then take it on the road. Sign up the G7, sign up our NATO allies, sign up the UN, sign up regional organizations in Africa, for example. So what started as an American initiative becomes an international initiative. You know, on the Proliferation Security Initiative, for example, to deal with the transfer of weapons of mass destruction and, and, and constituent materials to terrorist groups and rogue states, we ended up with 140 countries participating in that effort. Same thing on the efforts we did against terrorism. So there, there is a way to take these national initiatives and turn them into international efforts. And then finally, a lesson which comes, I think, from the book was true in the past and I think is still true today, that if there's an international problem, if the Americans do not take a lead role in trying to solve it, nothing much is going to happen. It still is true that it is the American initiative and impetus that is an essential element if you're going to have an international response to a problem. Yes, it's a different world. Yes, you know, you have the rise of middle powers like Saudi and Turkey and India that matter. Yes, China is getting more active in their diplomacy, but really the United States still has an essential role to play. I think those are the kind of major takeaways that come away from looking at the transition memos in the book. You know, it's interesting, Steve. It reminds me of what your former colleague and our former board member, Rich Armitage, always said is that, you know, everybody likes to badmouth the United States, but when they want to get something done, we're the first people they call. Uh, that is true. And, you know, there's a lot of bad mouthing in the United States. You know, it runs a spectrum. So under the Bush administration, sometimes the international opinion was that the United States was trying to do too much. And then in some of the subsequent administrations, Obama and, and, and Trump, suddenly the complaint was the United States wasn't doing enough. Turns out we've got to be present in the world. And again, it's not as some kind of magnanimous motion notion of generosity to other countries. We do it because what matters in the world can affect what happens here at home. It can affect it economically, which translates into jobs and economic growth at home. Or as we saw on 9-11, it can affect actually the very security of the United States when terrorists want to target America. So America is engaged abroad because it really matters for the security and prosperity of Americans here at home. That's really the lesson that I think, another lesson that you draw from this book. And, and so in your view, sir, how, how has the global landscape of threats and opportunities evolved since the time these memoranda were, were composed? And what are some of the challenges the Biden administration right now and future administrations are going to face? Good question. And I think the way to start on that answer is, if I can, to describe the world when Bush entered off and then the world that began to emerge as he left office, and it's become even more that way over the subsequent administrations. So just bear with me a moment. The world Bush faced, we come out of World War II, defeated fascism, come out of the Cold War, defeated communism. 
America was the world's preeminent power. There was an international order, which we had basically helped create at the end of World War II, which was based on our values of freedom, democracy, human rights, rule of law. And it was really unchallenged. Political democracy and free market economics after the death of fascism and communism seemed to be the only organizing principle for a successful society. And great power competition in 2001 seemed to have taken a vacation from history. So it was a really remarkable time. By the end of the Bush administration, what has started to appear, and even more so under the Obama and Trump administrations, great power competition is back. We have a revanchist Russia invading Ukraine. We have now a China that wants to be hegemonic in the region and really replace us as a, as, a, as a leader in the international system. So great power competition is back. Both Russia and China, but some of the middle powers as well, want to, if not modify or revise the international order, then maybe overturn it. So it is the international order that arose after the end of World War II is in dispute. America is still a powerful par- partner in the world. We still represent about 25% of global GDP, but relatively, we are less powerful and less preeminent than we are and, and face a real emerging challenge in terms of China. And political democracy and market economics is now challenged by Russia and China, and they are promoting an authoritarian model as an alternative to political democracy. And they're getting a lot of sympathetic ears. Uh, internationally. So it is a much more competitive place, much more challenging place. And the irony is that the issues that are talked about in this book, in this handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama, those issues are still with us. The form may be a little different, but those issues are still with us. And that's why the last section of each of the postscripts is looking back over 20 years and four administrations handling the issue, what are the lessons learned for the Biden administration and future presidents? Because we're still going to be dealing with these issues for years, if not decades to come. Yeah, that, that's what is so fascinating about this book, the postscripts. The memos themselves, of course, are fascinating and something we rarely, people outside of government, get to look at. But the postscripts, some of them really underscore what has changed and some of them underscore what hasn't changed. Is, is there Are there any of these postscripts that really stand out to you that you can talk about? Well, there are a lot of things that Americans really don't know that happened in the Bush administration, some of which Americans should be very proud of. I mean, one of the sections deals with Bush administration policy in Africa, which really had three parts. One, we took an active role in diplomacy with regional organizations to resolve six major regional conflicts that had killed hundreds of thousands and handicapped economies throughout Africa uh, to, to establish a context where we could then pursue, secondly, a different approach to development, which was not the traditional donor recipient grantor kind of model, but a real partnership where we would work with local countries that were doing right by their own people, develop a program, hold people to account, 
have measurable results, not just throw money at a problem, but actually produce real results for the people on the continent of Africa. New model of development reflected in the Millennium Challenge Account Program, for example. And then finally, the initiatives on pandemic diseases in Africa, the PEPFAR program that addressed HIV AIDS, the President's Malaria Initiative that addressed malaria. These programs reflect really the best in the generosity of the American spirit and the use of taxpayer dollars to save, in the case of the PEPFAR program, probably 25 million lives from HIV AIDS. And in terms of the President's Malaria Initiative, another 10 million more. These are wonderful examples of America as a good citizen and uh, America's generosity that the American people know nothing about. And they should know about it and they should be proud of it. And again, it's not just charity. Yes, it helped the people of Africa, but it also tried to make sure that those areas that were afflicted by these terrible diseases didn't become recruiting grounds for terrorists who could destabilize Africa and ultimately come for Americans here at home. So this is a case of enlightened self-interest by the American people doing a good thing for the world and for America, and America knows almost nothing about it. And us at CSIS, we're very proud of that too, because we work pretty closely with your administration on developing PEPFAR policy through Carrie Frist and through our own efforts, Dr. Steve Morrison, my colleague, worked very closely with the Bush administration on that. It, it, it certainly is a monumental achievement and something to be proud of. Let me ask you about some of the other major sections of the book. We have the war on terror, of course, which people think right about when it comes to the Bush administration post 9-11. What were some of the lessons there and that we're still learning today? Well, one of the things that 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 is interesting about that is that People have forgotten just how dire the situation was after 9-11. So 19 terrorists hijacked four airplanes, killed 3,000 citizens, mostly Americans, but citizens from almost 80 countries. And we really didn't know enough about Al-Qaeda that was behind that incident. And the intelligence community at the time said this was likely to be the first of a wave of mass casualty attacks, some of which would involve weapons of mass destruction. And you may remember that the next month after September 2001, in October, envelopes containing a white powder that turned out to be anthrax poison started showing up in congressional offices on Capitol Hill and even in the Capitol building itself as well as the headquarters of several media organizations. A number of people died as a result of that. I, I was working for one of those media organizations, and I remember the, the people coming in in hazmat suits. It was terrifying. Exactly, exactly. And we didn't know who was behind that. So that was the challenge we faced. And the president basically said, we're going to do everything we can within the limits of the law as it stood at the time to keep the country safe. and basically restructured our whole process for dealing with the problem of terrorism, established the Homeland Security Council in the White House, established the Department of Homeland Security merging agencies from around the country, changed, got new legal authority, adopted new programs, 
redirected the authorities and, and missions of various agencies. I remember President Bush four days after 9-11 saying to Bob Mueller, the new director of the FBI, Bob, you have a new mission. It's not just to find bad guys after the fact and bring lawsuits against them and try them and put them in jail. Your job now is to find bad guys and preempt them. That is to say, allow us to ensure that those terrorist attacks don't happen at all. You've got now a new mission of preventing terrorist attacks, not just an issue of law enforcement. So it was a revolution in terms of the government. It required the administration to work with the Congress in a bipartisan way and have the support of the American people. And that effort resulted in the fact that those predictions of the intelligence community after 9-11 did not come true. And since that time, we have not had a mass casualty attack on the United States. We're very fortunate in that respect, but it's because I think in part, a lot of effort by a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, in the Congress, in the administration, at the level of state and local governments, and the American people more generally. Do you think that part of the work that you did during the War on Terror really set the stage for that bipartisan cooperation? I think so. But, I, you know, the 9-11 was one of those moments that sort of cut through the tensions of the moment and the and the sort of mundane political competition that sometimes is the source of so much rancor and division. It really shocked the country in a way that almost cannot be recreated. And it wasn't just America. You know, I went and looked at a uh, a, a log that the and the the DNI, the the Director of National Intelligence, does about terrorist incidents around the globe. And I'd look just at the terrorist incidents after 9-11, September 11, 2001, through the end of 2002. There were roughly 38 terrorist incidents around the globe affecting 13 countries. You know, the world was awash in terrorism at that time. And the real challenge was to go after the terrorists, take the fight abroad so we didn't have to take the fight all here at home undercut the ideology of the terrorists by offering democracy and freedom as an alternative to their grim vision and try to wean the world away from supporting these terrorist groups. And the world today in terms of terrorism, there's a lot of terrorism out there, but it's not of the kind of scale of the mass casualty attacks that we saw in that period of 2001 and 2002. And let's hope we never have to go back to that world. Well, I think one of the key lessons from your book is that we have to stand vigilant. We can't lapse into complacency. That's one of the, if you look at the lessons learned at the end of those transition memos that deal with the institutionalization of the war on terror, as we call it, that's really one of the messages loud and clear. Another thing people haven't recognized is we did a similar sort of thing to deal with the problem of proliferations of weapons of mass destructions and particularly the concerns about weapons of mass destruction getting into the hands of terrorists. Again, a major change of how the government dealt with that problem, not only changing our institutions, legislation, authorities, but then signing up the world through things like the Proliferation Security Initiative to getting serious about proliferation. And while we 
didn't solve the problems of Iran and North Korea, which we could talk about if you want. But it's interesting, since the Bush administration, there has not been a single new nation that has become a nuclear weapons state. And so far as we know, there has not been a single terrorist organization that's gotten access to a nuclear weapon or nuclear materials from which they could make a nuclear weapon. That's good news. That's a dog that didn't bark. And we'd like that dog to, to keep not barking for as long as we can. That's for sure. I want to read you something from the book because it has such relevance to the conflict, uh, the war in Ukraine right now. One of the memos said, quote, Russia attempts to challenge the territorial integrity of Ukraine, particularly in Crimea, which is 59% ethnically Russian and is home to Russians. The Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet must be prevented. The memo warned five years before Russian forces would seize Crimea and 13 years before they would invade the rest of the country. And the memo added that Russia will exploit Europe's dependence on Russian energy and use political means to drive wedges between the United States and Europe. That was certainly a pretty good prediction on the part of the Bush transition team. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. In some sense, we, as, as the transition memo makes clear, we tried with both Russia and China to see if we could bring them into the international system, bring them westward, have a positive and constructive relationship with them. And basically, both of those countries, for different reasons, decided to go in a different direction. And it's a real tragedy. But, but we really, I think, lost Putin during the color revolutions of 2003, 4, and 5 in Ukraine and Georgia and Kyrgyzstan. We thought these were good things. These were popular uprisings to put in place effective democratic governments that would be good neighbors of Russia. But Putin saw it as a CIA front, these uprisings as a CIA operation to create anti-Russian regimes on the border of Russia as a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia itself. And in 2008, Putin goes into Georgia. And at the time we said, that if we don't impose a strategic cost on Putin for having gone into Georgia in 2008, tomorrow he'll go into Ukraine, and the next day he'll go into the Baltic states, figuratively, the next day he'd go into the Baltic states. And since the Baltic states are members of NATO, that means a NATO-Russia war. Nobody should want that. So it was very clear that, that by the end of the Bush administration, Putin had agenda that has emerged to be this agenda of trying to reestablish not the Soviet empire, but the Russian empire in areas that are traditional Russian lands, which Putin defines as Belarus, Ukraine, the Baltic states, parts of Poland, parts of Slovakia, Moldova, various other places. So this is, this is really the threat that Putin represents, an effort to reestablish a Russian empire at the expense of his neighbors and in violation of the accepted order in world in Europe since the end of the Cold War, which basically said respect for sovereignty, respect for borders, and no change of those borders by the use of force. Putin has basically overturned all of that by what he's done in Georgia and now in Ukraine. And if we turn to China for a minute, one of the sections of the book is, of course, and you mentioned this before, great power competition. 
do you think that great power competition is going to define this next era of United States foreign policy, national security, economic security? Is that really the thing that we're going to need to be paying the most attention to? I think that's right. And I think the competition that we're really talking about is the emergence of China, which is the kind of challenge that we've really never faced. The Soviet Union was a military challenge, but it had an ideology, communism, that in the end of the day could be imposed on countries, but was not really embraced or chosen by countries. And it was an economic pigment with a very autarkic economy not particularly integrated into the, to the international order and not a particular internet economic powerhouse. That's different with China. China is an emerging military power, probably the fastest growing military power, has a fast growing strategic nuclear program. They're getting into that business big time. It is, of course, the world's second largest economy. It is most countries' biggest trading partner having displaced the United States as the biggest trading partner. And it is really using its diplomatic clout and throwing its weight around internationally. And in some sense, actively undermining the principles of democracy, not only in China itself, but also undermining the countries around the world and even interfering in our own democracy by in trying to encourage division and dissension within the American people. So this is the kind of comprehensive challenge we've never faced before. And we're the Trump administration gets a lot of credit for waking Americans up to this challenge. The Biden administration, I think, gets a lot of credit for starting to build what I think is increasingly a bipartisan policy of how to deal with the problem of China. And I would say, finally, I think you know, China's not 10 feet tall. They've got a lot of their own problems. I would say Xi Jinping has made a lot of strategic mistakes, not just the Zulu or COVID problem, but emerging on the international stage too soon and waking up America to the, to the China challenge, strangling a lot of the economic growth that used to be double digit economic growth in China and is now struggling to sort of hit 5%. So I think China's made a lot of, lot of strategic mistakes. I think if we do the right things here at home, have the right policies over the next five years, we can deal with this challenge. But it's really in our own hands. And we've got to make the right decisions and the right policies. Finally, sir, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Iraq. And you, Megan O'Sullivan, who worked for you in the National Security Council, is a well-known expert, wrote the section on that. And I think she pointed to some pretty interesting things that your administration learned and that future administrations need to learn from the Iraq war. A lot of that had to do with our assumptions on being able to nation build, being able to hold the territory. What did, what's your takeaway from that section? Well, there are a lot of uh, sort of mythologies about Iraq. Uh, for example, nation building. No, no external country can build a nation. Nations have to, have to, win their own freedom and build their own futures. But President Bush felt that the United States can't help and should help. Secondly, a lot of people think we tried to spread democracy out of the barrel of a gun. We overthrew Saddam Hussein for national security reasons. 
He had invaded his neighbors, terrorized his people, supported terrorism, was and had in the past pursued weapons of mass destruction. But we pursued a to we responded to the overthrow of Saddam and the desire of the Iraqi people for a democratic future by trying to help them build that democratic future. Why did we do that? One, because we thought the only way societies like Iraq with religious and ethnic differences were going to hold together was in a democratic framework where Sunni, Shia, and Kurds could work together to build a common future. And secondly, only if we built that kind of society would we ensure that Iraq would be an ally in the war on terror and not a source of terrorism that could reach the United States. So there are a lot of, I think, mythologies about Iraq. But I think it is fair to say that we failed in a decisive way by our inability to stabilize Iraq after we overthrew Saddam Hussein in 2003. And it was really not until the surge in 2007 that finally by 2008, were we able to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq and bring the level of violence down so it was no longer a threat, strategic threat to the Iraqi government. We paid a huge price for those four years in terms of the loss of American lives, loss of American treasure, but particularly our coalition friends and allies, and especially, of course, the Iraqi people. It delayed their ability to start building the kind of society they wanted. Why was that? A lot of reasons. One, from a planning standpoint, you know, John Allen, a wonderful military officer who commanded our forces in Iraq at one point, or in Afghanistan at one point, said, you know, we need to plan from phase four back. Where do you want to end up after displacing somebody like Saddam Hussein? And then plan backwards to the day when you initiate hostilities so that you make sure that the war doesn't take you in a direction other than the direction of where you want to end up. We don't plan operations that way. Secondly, we didn't have the kind of civilian capabilities we needed. We've invested in our military. We have the world's best and greatest military. We have not invested in those civilian skills that are needed to help post-conflict societies build effective governance, functioning economies, and local security forces that can maintain order. We also, I think, fail to recognize probably that the kinds of projects that we undertook in Iraq to help the Iraqi people build the kind of society they wanted, they're the work of decades, if not generations. And if you look at how long we've been engaged in Europe to help it recover from World War II, Japan, same thing, or South Korea, after the end of the Korean War, we helped those countries emerge, create strong, prosperous democracies today. And we still have tens of thousands of troops in each one of those places. We were unable in subsequent administrations to make the same kind of commitment to Iraq. And I think we paid a price for that. I will say, finally, though, I'm still optimistic about Iraq. Yes, they are struggling, but they are struggling democracy. They've had six elections and peaceful transitions of power. The Kurds in, the, and the, in Kurdistan and the central government are finally talking about cooperating on the export of oil and maybe come up with an oil law. 
I think there's a good chance that in the end of the day, Iraq will be what we hoped it would be and what the Iraqis wanted it to be, a democratic country where Sunni, Shia, and Kurds are working together for a common future and playing can play a constructive role in the region. That's my hope for Iraq. And I'm, I still think, in spite of everything, Iraqis may get there. It's a fascinating book, sir. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I urge all of our listeners to go buy a copy or two of Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama by Stephen Hadley. Steve, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 